Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Friday night, we meet the director of a new documentary that explores the relationship between nine men and their cats. It's called Cat Daddies. It looks into why it still carries a certain stigma and why it shouldn't. Sticking with movies and magic, we dive into the world of visual effects in a Toronto company called Mars, which stands for Monsters, Aliens, Robots, and Zombies, and the work they've done on popular and the work they've done on popular shows such as Wednesday and movies like Spider-Man: No Way Home. But first, the much-anticipated commission report into the federal government's decision to invoke the Emergency Act to end the so-called Freedom Convoy blockades last year came out today. And while it finds the use of the act was justified, Justice Paul Rouleau says the case was not overwhelming. Mark this down in your calendars. Friday, February 17th, 2023 was an important day for democracy in this country. I know that sounds heavy for a Friday night, but it really was a day where we learned a ton of stuff that was crucial to the way our democracy works. We began this morning with this remarkable story in the Globe and Mail about China, at least CSIS documentation showing what they believe has been regular interference from China in the Canadian election process, working to defeat candidates that Beijing deems unfriendly to the regime through money, pressure, misinformation. And it seems likely to have had a real impact uh, on the outcome in some races in 2021, it didn't um, impact the overall outcome of the election, but it is certainly something to be concerned about. And then just a few hours later, we got to see that much anticipated report from the Public Order Emergency Commission into the Trudeau's government decision last February 14th to invoke the Emergencies Act. You'll remember back then, uh, the blockades were continuing in Ottawa and at other borders across the country. And so for the very first time in its 30-year history, the Emergency Act was invoked to help bring those blockades to an end. At more than 2,000 pages, the report is enormous. But in a nutshell, here's what Justice Paul Rouleau determined. First, the blockades were mainly peaceful, but there was an element that constituted a threat and they had at this point spun out of control. He writes, I do not accept the organizers' descriptions of the protests in Ottawa as lawful, calm, peaceful, or something resembling a celebration. Remember the blow up hot tubs and all that stuff. The bigger picture, he says, reveals that the situation in Ottawa was unsafe and chaotic. So, he determined off the bat that there was indeed a threat. Then he found that the Trudeau government's decision to invoke the act, giving it extraordinary powers, don't forget, this is not something any government should ever do lightly, was indeed justified. But, and this is a pretty big but, he did so with reluctance. After careful reflection, I have concluded that the very high threshold required for the invocation of the act was met. Rulo adds, if the police and politicians had acted differently, quote, the emergency that Canada ultimately faced could have likely been avoided. Unfortunately, he says, it was not. The fact that circumstances evolved to the point where cabinet reasonably considered it necessary to invoke the act is regrettable, because in my view, the situation that led to its use could likely have been avoided. 
As I explained in my report, the response to the Freedom Convoy included a series of policing failures. And he goes on to say not just that there were failures with the Ottawa police and others, but he also points at all levels of government, saying that coordination certainly between the provinces and Ottawa lacked that, uh, you know, the the Ontario government, uh, Doug Ford's government, was missing in action, that essentially they abandoned the people of Ottawa, uh, wiping their hands of the whole thing for political expediency. They didn't want to get involved in it, so they didn't. Uh, so lots of failures here, but it all added up to a crisis. It all added up to a real threat. It all added up to invoking the Emergencies Act, and that, he says, was justified. The Prime Minister emerged soon after. This was a good day for him, by the way. This report is what he had hoped for. Flanked by senior members of his cabinet that would have been involved in that decision, a victory formation, if you will, Trudeau says his government never wanted to invoke the act, calling it a measure of last resort. But the risk to personal safety, the risk to livelihoods, and equally the risk of people losing faith in the rule of law that upholds our society and our freedoms, those risks were real. Now, lots of people pouring over the 2,000 pages that were released today. One of them was Justin Ling. He's a freelance investigative journalist who spent a lot of time looking into the Freedom Convoy and the government's reaction to it. He's also author of the Bug-Eyed and Shameless newsletter, and he joins me now. Justin, thanks. Thanks for having me. We've been anticipating this day for quite a while. What did you? What was your first impressions of Justice Rouleau's findings? The report basically said what I thought it was going to say, which is a thing that I don't get to say very often, because I think as many of my colleagues or maybe my frequent readers would know, I'm notoriously bad at predicting the future. In this case, though, I can finally say I was, I was bang on. I mean, uh, Justice Rouleau vindicated the use of the Emergencies Act. He did leave open to say, you know, a reasonable person could come from, to, a, to a different inference uh, about the appropriateness. Uh, he noted deficiencies in the act. But, you know, he said the way it was done, it, it met the threshold. There was a, a threat to the security of the country. There were signs that things were going to get worse, not better. There were indications that um, beyond the sort of potential violence that had already been thwarted, allegedly, in Coots, Alberta, beyond the disruption to the economy, me the disruption to people's lives in downtown Ottawa, he said there was a real risk uh, of mounting uh, of a possible violence or possible confrontation uh, or, or other uh, disruptions or issues. So, um, you know, kind of across the board, he says, uh, looking at all the facts, taking into account all of the perspectives that the act was invoked um, reasonably. And what's more, he says that while there were issues in a limited way with how some of the orders may have been drawn up, uh, he said that they, again, were done in a way that was both reasonable and effective. He actually goes further in sort of deferring to the government that I expected him to do, but he really lays waste to a lot of the arguments put up by the, the pro-convoy types, by their lawyers, and by the Conservative Party that this was uh, unwarranted, illegitimate, and ineffective. Uh, Rouleau, on every count, says the opposite. It was interesting how he um, how he sort of laid out his case in, in a quite a in a very orderly kind of fashion by by taking down saying first of all anyone who said that these protests didn't pose some kind of threat was was incorrect he really sided with anyone who said that there was this was spinning out of control to use his words what I found interesting though was his whole all that he had to say around we should never have gotten here in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he calls it a failure of federalism, which is a line I'm quite fond of. Um, he meticulously takes apart all of the ways in which government 
let this happen and let it continue. There's a really interesting piece where he does not absolve the organizers or the protesters or the occupiers uh, of their uh, culpability in creating an unsafe and, and disorderly environment in Ottawa and elsewhere. He does not absolve them of the fact that some of them had used violent rhetoric or, or anything of that ilk. He very much places blame on the organizers and participants, but he does say, you know, listen, uh, the doors were open for these people when they got to Ottawa. There was no coordination. Even after they were asked to leave, the police were incapable of enforcing the law or enforcing order. There was frequent miscommunication and misdirection happening on every level. The province, he says, was basically missing in action. Um, you know, he has a lot of harsh words for uh, the police, the city, the province, the feds, uh, and, and I think they're warranted. You know, I, again, we can't remove responsibility from those who actually kind of drove this bus as it were, or this truck, I suppose. Um, but we can also keep some responsibility on those who uh, who created the conditions for this to happen. Our sort of mediation of our rights in this country is dependent on the state being in the middle of it, right? Freedom of expression means being allowed to dance you know, whenever you feel like it, but it does not mean you can dance in the middle of traffic. And the way we manage that is by saying, if you dance in the middle of traffic, the police are going to show up and either arrest you or at the very least drag you to the back of a car and give you a talking to. And I think that is an integral part of all of this, right? The, the fact that the police were unable, incapable, unwilling, incompetent in, in trying to, to mediate this clash of rights, uh, the rights of these folks to, to express their, their disapproval of the vaccine mandates, but also the right of the citizens of Ottawa to be free from intimidation, harassment, and violence. The, the police were, were missing an action there. It was interesting, too, how he leaned into the, into the politics of all this, because I think it was very clear. This was a question we were asking very early on in all this. Where is Doug Ford? Where is the premier of Ontario? You know, Ottawa may be the national capital, but it's the second largest, you know, it's not maybe not this. It's one of the largest cities in Ontario. Where is the premier? And he certainly, I was surprised, not surprised, perhaps, but he, he did. He was scathing about, about uh, the Ontario government's performance and all this. As, as he should be. I mean, you know, what's so helpful, you know, having a, a judge write a report like this is a double-edged sword. Uh, on one hand, you're going to get a neutral and as, as best as possible, a, a, a report that sticks to the facts and is reliant on the available evidence. But what Rouleau does, what Justice Rouleau does so well is kind of put aside all the politicking and the rhetoric and the, and, and the cut and thrust of whether it's Queen's Park or Parliament and really lay blame where it ought to be laid. And he does that very well with Doug Ford, because Doug Ford deserves an enormous amount of blame and scrutiny here. And he has largely escaped it. I mean, let's be really blunt uh, about what happens here. This is not a conservative or liberal thing. This is a Doug Ford thing. Doug Ford does not like doing difficult things. He does not like confronting people uh, who don't like him. He does not like making people dislike him. Um, He is a vain and in some cases narcissistic politician. I think that was on full display here. And again, this is not an intrinsic thing to the conservative the party. This is a, a thing maybe you can say that is specific to Doug Ford and maybe the Ford family writ large. Um, he was unwilling to stand up for the residents of his province, his voters, his constituents, his citizens, uh, because he thought it would play bad on him personally. And I, I think it's, it's reprehensible. And I'm really glad Justice Rouleau makes such a stringent case uh, for, for those provincial failures. I w- you know, if I were the liberal government here, I wouldn't be dancing around in celebration, but I'd be pretty happy with this report. 
it's basically the best case scenario for the prime minister. Like I said earlier, I kind of expected there to be a few more harsh words for how the government drew up the orders that actually kind of put the Emergencies Act into into practice, right? Um, Some of those orders basically forbade any kind of uh, protest more or less anywhere in the country that could have, for example, interfered with a vaccine clinic that could have potentially interfered with Parliament or Queen's Park or a provincial legislature, and, and, and actually opened the door for, for much wider applications of the act that would have forbade public protest or public expression. That is really worrying for me, because because the, the whole reason we have the Emergencies Act is to replace the War Measures Act, which, which basically stripped us of our civil liberties uh, when the government thought it necessary. The Emergencies Act was supposed to be a more enlightened version of that. It has higher threshold. It has uh, lower powers. And I thought the orders, as they were written, went too far in in kind of betraying the spirit of the act and letting the government limit protest, whether it related to the the Freedom Convoy or not. Uh, Justice Rulo didn't have the same concerns. Um, He was generally pretty uh, supportive uh, of the way that that, that those orders were written. He was a little more critical of how the government wrote uh, the language around asset seizure and forfeiture. He said that they kind of let the two open-ended. They froze maybe too many bank accounts. They let some of them stay frozen for too long. Um, so, But that was more of, I think, a, a procedural, a kind of a functional criticism than it was about how the actual act and orders were kind of used and invoked. I can't imagine, frankly, a more kind of glowing response, considering how difficult and imperfect um, the Emergencies Act is. I mean, this is, again, best case scenario. I get the sense that because it was uh, revoked quite quickly, that came into play here as well. But he did point out, uh, and I think he was operating within certain boundaries here about what exactly, you know, what power or what scope do cabinet have to make this determination when they do act on it? You know, what are they allowed to do? And in this case, I think he, he found that they had acted, at least they were justified, which doesn't mean that they did the right thing, but he said they, they were justified in how they acted. He did point out, though, that the Emergencies Act is old. It needs updating. It had never been used before. He pointed out to the fact there was no precedence for it. So he didn't really have anything to base his opinions on uh, beyond his own thoughts about and what he had heard. Where do we go from here with the Emergencies Act? It feels like it needs some tightening. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. I mean, I say it's, it's it's as glowing as it could possibly be, but but that's within the context of the Emergencies Act being, like I say, a difficult and imperfect piece of legislation. The thresholds are really wonky and hard to interpret. And, you know, Justice Rillo, being, you know, a man of the court system, kind of has to defer to the letter of the law and how it's applied and and kind of some of the context of how it's been applied in the past. And and in some cases, it has to kind of defer to the fact that the federal government needs to have um, some leeway in, in this sort of interpretation. And he does that, I think, really, really quite well. But it doesn't take away from the fact that the definitions and the thresholds in the act are bad. They are too wide. They don't really make a ton of sense, uh, to be totally honest. I mean, um, as you if you followed the commission at all, you heard this really kind of difficult mismatch between the threshold, which is actually contained in the CSIS Act, and the this, this sort of utility for which the government wants to use it, right? So this, this threshold is supposed to tell CSIS when it can and or, or cannot, uh, for example, uh, do an undercover operation or intercept a phone call or tail a suspect or what have you, right? And it's really hard to import that definition upwards to the federal government to let them you know, invoke what are otherwise extraordinary powers. It's, it's just a mismatch 
mismatch. It doesn't really fit. And you heard Justice Rouleau basically say as much. We need new definitions. We need new thresholds. We need functionally a, a set of reforms to the act uh, that will make it both accessible to governments when there is a genuine emergency, but also that would ensure that the thresholds are high enough that governments can't invoke this for every minor annoyance or inconvenience, right? And you even heard the prime minister come out earlier and say that they'll be looking at this and will be tabling a sort of roadmap for how they intend on fixing the act in the near future, which I think is really encouraging. And I can only hope that every party in parliament decides to engage with that in a really genuine way, because if this becomes a partisan exercise or a, you know, a partisan tit for tat, I, I think that's really concerning, right? I, I think every single party needs to put aside the talking points, needs to put aside the politicking, for the love of God, on this one file at the very least, uh, and actually kind of you know put the, their nose to the grindstone and, and, and really fix this act to make sure that our civil liberties are protected in the near future, but also to ensure that the government is not handcuffed when there is a national emergency or when there is an actual threat to national safety. Justin Ling, as always, thank you. Thanks for having me. And as much as I tried to emphasize throughout the time that, of course, we're always going to stand up for freedom of speech and freedom to protest peacefully, or she hadn't said something that was able to be spread larger. Um, if I had chosen my words a bit careful, had been more specific, I think things might have been a bit easier. Yeah, the Prime Minister was responding to criticism today in the Rulo report into the invocation of the Emergencies Act that his words, calling those who occupied downtown Ottawa a fringe minority, uh, fired up, made things worse. I think we can all agree that that was true. Uh, but all in all, it was a good day for the government. The Public Order Emergency Commission released its long-awaited report examining the government's invocation of the Emergencies Act last February 14th during the week's-long Freedom Convoy protests. 2,000 pages plus the document. It called the convoy a singular moment in history. And Justice Rouleau says the government was justified in its decision. After careful reflection, I have concluded that the very high threshold required for the invocation of the Act was met. I do not come to this conclusion easily, as I do not consider the factual basis for it to be overwhelming. Reasonable and informed people could reach a different conclusion than the one I have arrived at. Which is a pretty remarkable thing for a justice to say when releasing a report. Not overwhelming. You know, others could come to different conclusions. However, he was the person in charge and he did in, find, did in fact find that it was appropriate and effective uh, to invoke the Emergencies Act. Part of the problem here is that there's, he has certain parameters with which in he lives, right? The government, the cabinet has fairly wide powers to do this and he was operating within that. So, um, you know, it gave itself extraordinary powers, including the power to restrict peaceful assembly. Uh, we saw the possibility of having your personal assets frozen with no notice and no due process. The list goes on and on and on. This was a very big deal. And what we found out today is the Emergencies Act was constructed in such a way that Cabinet actually had quite a bit of leeway when it came to doing this. And even the way that Justice Rouleau interpreted their ability to invoke this justifiably 
is sort of constrained by the act itself, right? And that's where we get to our next guest. The Canadian Centre for Civil Liberties is suing the government over the use of the legislation in a separate proceeding. This is completely different from what happened today at federal court. That's set to be heard in April. So what do they make of today's reports and its contents? Joining me now is Noah Mendelson-Aviv. She's Executive Director and General Counsel with the CCLA. Thanks. I know this has been a mighty long day for you, so I appreciate you staying up to join me. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad we're able to talk about this important issue. Yeah, tell me about your reaction to it, because I know you're reading it um, in a few different ways. I mean, as I was mentioning, Justice Rouleau had his mandate and he was confined to certain things. Uh, what did you make of uh, the thrust of the report? Well, as you noted, it's a very long report and we have not yet had a, the opportunity to go through all of it and to go through it as thoroughly as we would like. Um you know, there, we are certainly grateful for the process and for the work that the commissioner and the commission staff have done. And it's very important that evidence comes to light um, and that, you know, there is transparency and accountability as much as possible around the process of using such a massive, um, well, such a massive power that the government hands itself. But the, the conclusion is one in terms of the invocation of the act that we respectfully don't agree with. And the commissioner did say, uh, as you noted earlier, that in fact, you know, the, the factual basis of his conclusion that the threshold was met, that that factual basis is not overwhelming and that reasonable and informed people might reach different conclusions. And CCLA did reach a different conclusion. And we do believe that uh, invoking the act was not justified in the circumstances of last year's protests. Um, but there were other things we agreed with, like concerns about some of the emergency orders that were issued that froze people's accounts and, and you know, didn't didn't include how to unfreeze them. So there's a there's a mixed bag there. I was um, I, I, I not taken aback would be the wrong word, but that's not a, not the language. You know, uh, other reasonable people could reach a different conclusion is not the language you normally hear in these forms of reports. Now, this would be the first time this one has ever happened, but I've been to lots of those commissions of inquiry, and you don't often hear uh, justice be so circumspect about something. Yeah, and, and the other thing that he says in the, in the report is that it's not actually the role of the commission to assess the legality of the use of the act. Um, and so he does, you know, put forward his conclusion about it, and he does state that that very high threshold that is required by the act, in his opinion, uh, and his findings was met. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you that it is a very interesting statement when he says, you know, you really could, um, I don't want to try and reword it because I don't want to, uh, you know, change his words, but certainly we see, we reached a different conclusion uh, that we believe is reasonable and is informed by the evidence and is informed by um, both the purpose and the language of the act, which is to, constrain government from taking on emergency powers unless it is absolutely critically necessary because emergency powers suspend the ordinary democratic process. And that is not something that can be taken lightly. Yeah, it feels like when it was done, um, there was a fairly soft touch with it. it. You know, it was over quite quickly. Um, there were certainly some impacts when we saw the freezing of bank accounts and so forth, some really tangible acts that we wouldn't normally see. But because it went away quickly, it felt like we didn't quite understand, a lot of us didn't quite understand just what kind of power the government was wielding in that period. That's right. This government or any future government with these protests or any future event, any future protest, any future dissent or disagreement. And, and so we have to be concerned about 
any government saying, oh, we have this act, we can use it. Um, and, you know, now a precedent has been set that we can use it in the face of really disruptive um, protests that have unlawful activity. And, and of course, you know, as, as many commentators have pointed out, and we've certainly pointed out, a lot of protests are disruptive. In fact, I believe the commissioner pointed that out himself. Mm-hmm. Protests are designed to draw attention to injustice, to grievances, to disagreements. And we've seen students and we've seen Black Lives Matter and we've seen striking workers. I mean, we know how important protest is. Our organization has stood up for protesters and counter-protesters and dissenters and workers for decades. And yeah. we would be very concerned if, you know, in, in any of the protests that had happened, a government would invoke an Emergencies Act to deal with what is in effect a law enforcement situation. Yeah, in the case of the CCLA, of course, I think it's important to point out uh, how nonpartisan you are, because again, this uh, this covers all sides of issues these days. That's that's absolutely right. I mean, our our interest here was not in this case. It wasn't the protesters. It wasn't their message, and it wasn't their method. We weren't there to support them, and we weren't there to denounce them. We we are in this because we care about democracy and rights, and the safest way to do that is in a democracy that functions with accountability and transparency. And again, that's why we were there when the Emergencies Act was passed. We were there fighting for high thresholds, high accountability mechanisms to make sure that governments wouldn't do it lightly. I'm not suggesting that they invoked the act lightly. I am suggesting that they invoked it incorrectly. Tell me about the court case, because it's separate. It's coming up in April, and you are going to go ahead with it. That's right. We are going to go ahead with it, uh, and we're going to, you know, we, we had a, a procedural victory this week where the court agreed to take some of that evidence that was before the commission and um, and ask the government to bring that evidence to the court case as well so that the judge who does have the authority to look at the legality of invoking the act will be able to assess uh, and interpret how one should understand an emergency, a public order emergency, a threat to the security of Canada, what that high standard is and how it should be applied and whether it applies in this case, uh, which we say it, it, it did not. So we have this uh, this process, the Rouleau Commission process, the, the automatic uh, review of the invocation of it. And of course, the government have said they'll take the next year to put out a timeline to act on some of the 56 recommendations that Justice Rouleau laid out. What happens with your case? It, it, this is a parallel thing, but how could it impact um, the future? What, what kind of impact could it have depending on what, what is decided? Well, first and foremost, we want everybody in this country to be paying close attention. And our goal has been from the outset to make sure that we're watching. We, we see ourselves as a national watchdog to protect and stand with and support other people and other communities to stand up and protect the rights and freedoms of all people here. So first of all, we're all watching now. Everybody should hear the word emergency orders and be a little bit concerned and paying close attention because we, we got used to hearing about emergency orders during the pandemic. This was not a normal part of Canadian life. And the pandemic changed things for us very significantly. And we can't have that normalized. It's got to be a last resort. It's got to be an extreme measure that would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do they need those kinds of powers? So that's the first thing that we want to accomplish. And we want the court to say the high threshold is, in fact, as high as we say it is. 
and it was not met in these circumstances, if law enforcement is capable of taking care of a, you know, a disruptive and large and complex protest occupation situation, which it is and which it did in this case, then that's what should happen. And the government doesn't have to give itself the power to make laws without the usual democratic process. And if a court says that, then what we're hoping is that future governments and the public will be on notice that this is what emergency powers are and this is when they cannot be used because that protects all of us from every government, regardless of what it is that we want to stand up for, what injustices we want to make sure are corrected. Well, Noah Mendelssohn-Aviv, thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure. Real estate. You can never not be interested in real estate. The numbers for January came out this week and they were pretty dire. Uh, Home prices fell for the 11th straight month, but that's not too surprising considering how high housing prices were last year, right before interest rates started to jump eight times in a row as of last month. Um, But sales were down to the lowest point um, since the global financial crisis, since 2009. And that was kind of surprising, I thought. It turns out, of course, what's happening is that a lot of people are waiting for the dust to settle. They want to see how high interest rates go. Buyers are waiting. Sellers are waiting. Everyone's just standing by and watching. Um, And that's despite the fact that employment is at record highs, which is usually, or near record highs, which is usually a good sign for the housing market. But lots of people looking in that rearview mirror, those seven Bank of Canada rate hikes last year, one already this year, interest rates at their highest level since 2007, maybe, maybe more on the way, we don't know. So again, people waiting on the sidelines, but are there glimmers of hope out there? I mean, hope depends what you're trying to do. If you want to buy a house, you know, I'm not sure anything's going to get much better anytime soon. Prices are still really high. Interest rates are high. But joining me now is Phil Soper. He's the CEO of Royal LePage. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. So I, I know there's, um, you know, there's, give me an idea of what the mood is like these days within the industry, because we're seeing some, we're seeing some doom and gloom a little bit in the reporting on on numbers and so forth. But at the same time, it feels very different from these sorts of reports in the past. Well, the economic news broadly is positive. And you've got to remember that when people are working, they're capable of buying homes and are month after month of uh, record in employment jobs data is very positive for the industry. So those who at least have been around for a little bit of time realize that this too shall pass. And these people with, uh, with jobs and work and, and savings will invest in, in housing. We just have to get through the period where they worry that the home they buy today might be worth less tomorrow, which has put them on the sidelines. Yeah, a lot of that has to do, no doubt, with the huge jump in prices we saw during the height of the pandemic or just afterwards, and obviously interest rates. Yeah, it was a feeding frenzy in 2021. And for the first, uh, call it uh, 10 weeks of 2022, and of course, the numbers we're comparing ourselves to today in January of 23 are being compared to a completely unrealistic January of 2022. They were record numbers, so much higher, uh, both in price increases and the number of homes trading ads than what is normal historically, that the comparisons aren't very useful. So if we look at longer term trends, then if we go back, say, five years and where we sit today in February of 2023, what are the trends then? 
the basic trend driving home prices is household formation and the rate of building. So we've been growing as a nation, well, for decades, but really strongly for three decades. And since 1995, uh, we've been building less homes than the rate of our population growth or what we call household formation growth. And there's other little subtleties. The size of our households is shrinking. So if you go back to when I was a kid, the average household had four people in it. If you go back to my parents' time, it was closer to six. We're now at closer to two. We've got a lot of single person households. What does that mean? Well, if you take the same population and you put half as many people per house, you need twice the number of homes. So we've got lots of pressure on a, a housing stock or the number of homes we have, be they condos or homes, and this rising population. And so we've structurally got upward pressure on home prices that's greater and call it underlying inflation, except when you have a correction. And, and we do have corrections in the market. We had one in, in Ontario in 2017 with the introduction of the Fair Housing Act. If you remember, it was a series of measures designed to slow home price increases. We had one, or it continued in 2018, with the introduction of the federal mortgage stress test. So we've had a, a bit of a seesaw housing market over the last half a dozen years. But the general trend over three decades is that home prices have been rising at a greater rate than inflation. And I don't see that changing in the, over the next 20 years. The impact of interest rates has been interesting because it does feel like, and I just use even within my own family, uh, there is this idea that people are going to wait on the sidelines for a bit here and that we're seeing that, I think. You know, it's always said that it takes a while for interest rate hikes to make their way through the economy. And it feels like they're making their way through the housing market at a similar pace. Yeah, I think the big difference for 2023 is that interest rates were headline news in business news and general news. I'm sure you you talked about them a lot in 2022 because they were on a relentless march upwards at really unconventional rates. They were rising very quickly and they'll soon become old news. It's not very exciting when you report month after month, week after week, that interest rates haven't changed. And we are moving to that environment. Whether we have another 25 basis point increase or not, we are moving to an environment of stable interest rates. And I think that will be the no news story of 2023. And with that will come stable house prices, which will then start to grow again, albeit modestly, according to our outlook. And that confidence will return. And we've got quite a bit of pent up demand, uh, both pent up demand that didn't get satisfied during the pandemic because there were so many more people chasing a limited number of listings. So a lot of people didn't get the home they were looking for during the pandemic. And now we have demand building because people are frightened to transact. They have the capacity to transact. They have the down payments. They can handle today's uh, higher interest rates, but they're just worried about getting into the market if home prices are going to decline. As soon as they see them stable, they'll be back because the need is there. Yeah, it feels like everyone's sort of standing at the starting line waiting for the gun to go off. And in this case, exactly. I, I'm wondering I'm wondering what it would take for that gun to go off. Do you think it'll be gradual or do you think it'll be we're going to see something like we saw sort of in those early days of the pandemic where everyone thought, well, the housing market's going to crash. And then it didn't. It did the opposite. You know, in the early days of the pandemic, a couple of things happened. One, people realized it was safe to buy houses. Two, they realized that they could 
work from home and their office was closed. And so there was this hyper demand and everybody's working. We expected massive layoffs. And instead, the whole economy sort of switched to virtual mode and we had a surge in employment. So you have people working, savings growing, and a hyper interest in homes. And that fueled the pandemic, what I called the COVID catalyst. But there was overshooting too. And as soon as interest rates started to rise uh, sharply, it both priced some people out of the market because of the cost of borrowing. And people tend to buy homes based on monthly payments or rent equivalency, not on sticker prices. So that was one reason. The other reason was just confidence was eroded. It shocked people. So the trigger this year will be stability and pent-up demand or need. And I don't think that there'll be a rush uh, because interest rates are higher. So I think it'll be an easing into normal demand. And the real trigger will be the spring. We didn't have a spring market in um, 21 and 22 because it never slowed down over the, mar- uh, the, over the winter. It was crazy. We were selling cottages like crazy in December, January. And now we're, we have a normal winter market where things slowed right down. And we're, we're starting to see uh, activities really pick up in mid-February, which is completely normal. We will have a spring market. We don't know if it'll look like uh, 2019 volumes, but my guess is it will. Phil Soper, the CEO of Royal LePage, is with us this half hour. We're talking about the housing market. There were some gloomy numbers in January, but things are starting to look up a little bit heading into the spring. Uh, perhaps another return of what we used to know as sort of the spring, uh, the spring rush to buy homes. Maybe not a rush, but at least an increase. Uh, when you look at at what all, I mean, there's been so much talk about housing these days, but people unable to get on the housing ladder, on the property ladder. Uh, are we doing and a concerted effort, I think, around the country to try to address it? Do you see enough being done to try to make up for this lack of supply? And what you've already pointed out is a lot of demand. We're just not seeing the demand right now. Yeah. So the demand is there structurally. You know, the country's bringing in a record number of immigrants and just organically our millennial generation is just moving into its peak buying years. It's a little later than previous generations because as a, a cohort, they stayed at home longer. They got more education. I guess mom was cooking with cheese or something. So it took a while longer to get out of the house, but they are looking for houses now as well. And that is going to create the the demand. As far as governments, I believe that housing shortage crisis, and it is a crisis, is one of the the big three social issues of our time, along with the environment and healthcare. And it sounds like that when you listen to provincial or federal election campaigns. So it's not going away. You know, we've got a very short reprieve here as home prices have adjusted down. We're still up over pre-pandemic levels, over 2019, the beginning of 2020, but we've certainly come down quite a bit, call it, depending where you are in the country, between 10 and 18% from that peak values at the beginning of 2022. So that's helping people get in the market. But it'll be short-lived if we don't clear the way for more new home construction. And interestingly, and different from pre-pandemic, we need them in small cities as well as big cities because the... Um, Work virtually trend has not ended and it has spread Canadians out and it's creating housing shortages in cities like Windsor and London, as well as uh, Toronto and Ottawa. 
When you look at uh, some of the measures that have been brought in, you mentioned one earlier in Ontario, uh, there's been foreign buyers taxes brought in as well. Uh, are they having an impact? I mean, are, are some of the measures being brought in that don't involve actually building homes positively in, impacting the market for those who need them here? The short answer is no. A lot of the tax related or ban related initiatives are more political in nature and they have very little practical purpose. For example, the the ban on uh, uh, foreign nationals buying residential property for two years. It's good politics, but the greatest surge in home price increases occurred when our borders were closed and there was no investment from us. We have a made in Canada, a domestic housing shortage and banning foreigners is meaningless, really. Other legislation, maybe a little more meaningful, but again, just not enough to really move the, the needle on housing supply. For example, there are higher taxes in our big cities on vacant property. I don't have any problem with that kind of legislation. If public policy says you know, we're short of houses, people shouldn't be leaving them empty and not used. And if they're rich enough that they can leave, for example, a Toronto home sitting empty, they should be able to afford a, a higher tax. And that tax money can go into general coffers. And most politicians say they'll move that into creating public housing. We haven't seen that yet, but that's the message. So I don't have anything against that kind of policy, but we shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking it's actually going to do anything material for the housing shortage in this country. So in the short term, if I understand you, we're going to see a, a somewhat of a return to what we may have been used to in, in years past, pre-pandemic, a, a, you know, sort of a spring that, that moves a bit, people coming off the sidelines a little bit, but still everyone a bit leery for 2023 because of all that's happened in the last few years. Yeah, and interest rates are higher. When they start falling, which we expect to happen in 2024, I think we'll see the return of uncomfortably high home price inflation. Uh, but this year should be fine. I, we expect home prices to end 2023 much as they ended 2022. So my guess is we'll end up 2023 basically flat to the end of 2022. Well, Phil Soper, thank you so much. My pleasure. It can be hard sometimes when you're watching something these days to tell what's real and what's magic, right? What is actually actors and real scenery and what is created elsewhere? What is a combination of both? Who do you turn to if you're a content creator? If you want some magic done on your project, you can call it a visual effects company such as Toronto-based Mars. Now, Mars is a cool name because it's M-A-R-Z, and the acronym stands for Monsters, Aliens, Robots, and Zombies. It gives you an idea of the kind of movies they work on, but not exclusively. Uh, they started off in a basement in Toronto five years ago. They've now grown into a company with roughly 300 employees working on some of the biggest shows and movies around. That includes director Tim Burton, who created movies like Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands. His phenomenally popular series called Wednesday, as in Wednesday Adams, a new take on the old Adams family story. The Mars team was brought in to help with Wednesday's sidekick, Thing, you know, the hand, just the hand. It's been in all the Adams family's uh, series, the hand that just scoots, literally a hand with a mind of its own. Here's a preview. Hello, Thing. Did you 
Do you really think my highly trained olfactory sense wouldn't pick up on the faint whiff of neroli and bergamot in your favorite hand lotion? I could do this all day. Surrender. Mother and father sent you to spy on me, didn't they? I'm not above breaking a few fingers. The fact that they thought I wouldn't find out just proves how much they underestimate me. Oh, thing. You poor, naive appendage. You poor, naive appendage. So then Wednesday offers Thing an ultimatum. Either I put you in this drawer or you become my ally. Of course, uh, Thing teams up with Wednesday and the whole adventure starts from there. But creating Thing, making Thing move, they had a magician do part of it on a blue screen. So you can't see the rest of the body. You can just see the hand. But some of it just didn't work. They couldn't do it. So they had to call in a team like Mars to try to make those scenes that didn't work. There's one great one where Thing swims. And they had to work on stuff like that. So a really interesting way of doing movies, right? Mars has also developed AI software used for scenes and hit shows like Netflix's Stranger Things, the film Spider-Man No Way Home. And their latest foray, this is interesting, into artificial intelligence is a new tool which allows for aging and de-aging and to fix stuff that is out of place in shots uh, for such, such as wigs and, and prosthetics and stuff like that. So they can actually age and de-age people on screen like 300 times faster than you can do it normally. And they figure this is going to really help all kinds of people be able to use that, you know, that science or that magic, so to speak, in their films and TV shows. Well, with more on this now and the whole origins, what they're up to, Jonathan Brofman is the co-founder of Mars, Monsters, Aliens, Robots, and Zombies. And he joins me now. Thanks, Jonathan. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Ben. It's a remarkable story. So how did you get involved in this whole world? Uh, I, w- I was producing live action, uh, independent production, and I met my current partner because he was actually doing the visual effects supervision on the shows that I was producing. In late 2016, early 2017, we had the opportunity to come together and start our own visual effects company, and we both jumped at the opportunity, and that culminated in the official launch of Mars in August 2018. And it's been an astronomical, it's been a uh, a monster rise, so to speak. It's It's been a ride. From the outside, it looks like popcorn and bubblegum. On the inside, it's more challenging than that. I, I say we're, we're like a duck on a pond. We're, we're calm on the surface, but we're flapping our legs underneath. So it, it, it's like any other business. If, any, if everyone could do it, then they would. Uh, there are unique challenges in our space that we have to overcome, but it's, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. And obviously, as of today, we're, we're very proud of the work that we've done to date. Tell me about the space. What exactly, if listeners are curious, what exactly do they see on screen that is your work? The way I explain it is every second in a movie is 24 pictures strung together. So the traditional art of visual effects is painting over 24 images to get one second of visual effects content. And so that's what we, that's the traditional part of our business where we have artists effectively painting over pictures to create the image that you're not able to capture on set in the camera, whether that's an explosion or an otherworldly creature or otherwise. And, and that's we bring the spectacle to these productions. And it's evolved so much in such a short period of time. I mean, I think back to, you know, sometimes I make my wife watch movies made in the 70s or the 80s that I used to love. And she always remarks, why are there so many car chases? I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> they needed to chew up time and there weren't a lot of, there was no, there weren't a lot of special effects out there that could be used that weren't really expensive and really time consuming. Um, how much has that changed? 
for a guy who works in the space, I'm not necessarily a film buff or an auteur. Those 70s and 80s movies don't quite hold up for me. But but the 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 space has changed in tremendously over the, over the decades. Le- looking back at the original Star Wars franchise, those George Lucas movies, The New Hope, the first Star Wars movie that ever came out, they were using miniatures to do the space sequences, the, the spaceships and and the fight scenes in outer space. Whereas today, the miniature concept is is pretty much non-existent and fully computer generated images that do those sequences that could otherwise not be accomplished in the camera on set. So what, when, when someone comes to you, when a director comes to you uh, and says, here's what I need, uh, what, what is the ask usually and, and how do you set about doing it? Well, they, they come to us and they, they have an idea as to what they want to accomplish creatively and we work with them. So they can come with a creature or, or an environment that, again, they're not able to execute physically on set so we work with them because because visual effects it it costs money obviously but we want to find the most efficient process to execute the creative vision of the director and so we'll work with them to find different mechanisms and optimization strategies to make the dollars and cents jive with their creative expectations What's amazing about that, I mean, I worked in TV news for a long time, and editors used to always accuse all reporters of having a mind movie, you know, you that you were out there watching something unfold, and in your mind, it looked a certain way. And when you got back and saw the footage, of course, it wasn't quite the same. Um, so in, in some senses, you create the mind movie. That, that's right. And, and, and because of exactly what you're saying, sometimes they don't shoot it properly. And, and for a visual effects company, you need certain, it needs to be shot in a specific way in order for the create for the execution on the visual effects side to be done efficiently. And then there are the other clients who, who maybe are as sophisticated, but there's just a different consideration in post-production whereby the shot that we receive is not optimal. And we sort of, we have to kind of Frankenstein the, the execution of the production on the visual effects side, again, to fit their creative vision. Right. So so if someone is watching, it's kind of seamless, right? Because when you're watching a production in its finished state, you don't notice all the work that went into correcting and making sure that things actually fit, especially when it comes to the visual effects. Well, that's the holy grail of visual effects is invisible effects. And and I think about shows we've done in the past. Obviously, recently we did the Wednesday Addams show, uh, but I even think about a very pivotal show in our company's history, which was the Watchmen show. I'm not sure if you saw that or not, Ben, but... Uh, it was the Damon Lindelof HBO Watchmen miniseries, and it, it included a character called Looking Glass. And this guy had effectively a, re- a reflective balaclava that he would pull over his face. And one of the things we actually took pride at in Mars when the show was released, people asking, where can I find that mask? Because I want to be Looking Glass for Halloween. And, wow. and, to, uh, and to us, we're like, that's what we're going for. We want people to not realize that it's a visual effect because it means that we've succeeded in what we're trying to do. We want invisible effects. Obviously there are certain effects where that creature just doesn't exist. And so, you know, it is, but photorealism is, is the Holy grail in visual effects. Uh, tell me a bit about the Wednesday Adam series, because working with, um, with Tim Burton is a, is a big deal. He's sort of one of the, the godfathers of, of, of visual effects to some extent as well, going way back to, you know, the Beetlejuices and the Edward Scissorhands and so forth. Tim Burton's a visionary. There's no question. And, and I, I think 
obviously the guy holds up. You, you look at the success of Wednesday Adams, it's Netflix's most viewed show in their history. And, and it's a, it's a tribute and a feather in the cap to the great, the great Tim Burton. Working with him was a lot of fun. We, we honestly, we didn't, we didn't work with him directly pretty much at all. We, we worked with the visual effects supervisor on the client side, a guy named uh, Tom Turnbull. Uh, Tom, Tom's great. Uh, he was, he spearheaded the entire visual effects endeavor on the Wednesday series. We were a part of that endeavor being all of the fully computer generated thing shots in the series. And, you know, to our, to our conversation earlier, Ben, the photorealism and invisible effects, people were touting the, the performer who performed Sing on set. It was a guy who is a magician. So his dexterity is fantastic. He was wearing effectively like a blue wetsuit on set so that you can remove him from the shots and just see his hands. But then there were certain shots where you couldn't get that in-camera performance. And that's where we stepped in. And for those of your viewers who have watched the show, it's stuff like when Thing goes underwater, when he hops up onto the chassis of the car, and some of the other shots that were not able to be accomplished practically. Thing, of course, is the hand, right? In case people are remember, trying to remember back. <laughs> I have a funny story, only because I know this through through family. When they made Edward Scissorhands, uh, Bo Welsh, who was the production designer on a lot of Tim Burton movies, my understanding is they had to go ask each resident of that street to paint their house a different color. And then, of course, the deal was they painted it whatever color they wanted after that. That's how time-consuming visual effects were back then <laughs> compared to what they are today. Oh, the the lengths that they went through were incredible. And again, to to our conversation before the break, the the miniatures or or the idea of stop motion. And for those of your viewers who don't know what stop motion is, it's again miniatures. Every single second in the movie or millisecond, you're just adjusting the miniature ever so slightly, so that as as you look over a few seconds of footage, it feels like it's natural. It, it, it is. I mean, the time, the time out of time that people went to, I mean, again, you're right. They were luminaries at all this. Tell me a bit about being Canadian, because it is, it, you know, it feels like there's a lot of good things being done in Canada right now. We don't always know something is Canadian. Uh, but tell me about how your industry is working, right? How your part of the industry is, is, is working in Canada right now. Yeah. Well, being Canadian is what is part of our differentiation. So there, there are a few things that tie into that. First, we're the neighbors of the U.S. and specifically Hollywood. So the, the, re, the geographical convenience of being very close to them is super beneficial. Obviously, there's the dollar consideration. The Canadian dollar is weaker than the American dollar. We have a great tax credit program here that's been around for decades and is tried and true and is, is the poster child for tax credit programs around the world. But it's also the talent. We have great talent here. The artist pool, highly skilled, highly creative artists exist in Canada and, and internationals are flocking to Canada to increase the artist pool that exists here. And then on the technology side, Ontario, specifically where we reside, boasts some of the greatest technology programs in the world. So you look just down the street to Waterloo and Kitchener and the minds and the sophistication of the people coming out of these programs are it's they're they're fantastic there must be a lot of competition though because conceivably someone could do this cheaper elsewhere yes and and so that's the balance it, let's let's take for example india india's got a very robust visual effects uh program but 
what we do is we provide premium effects with highly skilled, highly trained, and very experienced artists and technicians and engineers. So if you're going to go for a more rudimentary task, like rotoscoping or, or very, very simple visual effects, you're probably not going to keep that work in North America. You're going to, you're going to look for a region in the world whereby you can find that labor and that execution for, for a much lower dollar amount. But for a certain level of quality and execution, you need to, you need to work with top companies, uh, not just Mars. There's, there's obviously great companies all over Canada, in the States. You're looking at Weta in New Zealand, ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, which is George Lucas's company. Again, the company that was spawned from the miniatures uh, in the 70s. And, and then there's those are the premier companies around the world. So where to from here? I mean, it's been fast growth and lots of success. Where do you hope to take all this? For us, it's about artificial intelligence. And the, the reality is that the demand for visual effects way outstrips the supply in the world. And so you can't fill that demand with artists because the incremental growth in artists year over year just does not supplement the, the demand for spectacle. We believe technology and artificial intelligence is the missing piece in the space. And obviously it's getting hot right now. Uh, AI generation for entertainment with chat GPT, mid journey, Dolly. It's all the buzz. And I can't say I was a visionary 10 years ago that said, Oh, well, AI is going to change entertainment. But here I am in this pocket with our company, and we just released our first product, Vanity AI, a few weeks ago. It's a 2D aging, de-aging, cosmetic, wig fix, prosthetic cleanup solution. What that product offers is a it is significantly more affordable than what the market has to offer today. We are 300 times faster than traditional methods. And most importantly, we don't have capacity restraints. And that is meaningfully solving for the global shortage of visual effects talent. That's where we hope to go moving forward. Jonathan Brofman is the co-founder of Mars, Monsters, Aliens, Robots, and Zombies. It's a fascinating world of visual effects, isn't it? This next story is a really interesting one because the name may be familiar to you, specifically if you're a Sportsnet fan. Uh, Justin Bourne is a commentator there on hockey. He's also the son of Bob Bourne. If you grew up in the 80s or in the 70s, you'll know who that was. Bob Bourne was a, a real prominent member of that incredibly dominant New York Islanders team of the early 80s that won four Stanley Cups. And of course, uh, Justin wanted and did follow in his father's footsteps to a certain extent. He played pro hockey first in the juniors, then moved on to the University of Alaska Anchorage to play college hockey. His father was known as a finesse player. He had remarkable speed, a goal scorer's touch. He scored 30 goals on three occasions. Justin, too, had a nose for the net. But it turned out, as time went on, struggles with addiction also saw him walking down the same very difficult path that his father knew all too well. Now, Justin only started drinking around age 21. He didn't drink at all in high school, didn't drink when he was in juniors, drank when he got to college. But it escalated quickly. It only got worse after an injury in 2008, ended his career. He was just 26. And then the drinking kind of took on the life of its own. Uh, as I mentioned, his father, Bob, the, the, the NHLer, had gone on to coaching and so on, also had suffered real issues with alcohol. Um, Justin would find success in sports writing and broadcasting, but the struggles with alcoholism would continue 
right up to four years ago, so 10 years, when at age 36, married and a father, he decided that was that. Um, or at least he figured he just couldn't go on any further. That There was nowhere lower to – any lower and it was going to be too late to win back or keep the things that he had found and treasured. So he went to rehab and as he calls it, he allowed his brain to, quote, come back online. Now, nearly 1,500 days later, Justin Bourne has a new book out called Down and Back on Alcohol, Family, and Life in Hockey. It's a look at his relationship to the game, his relationship with his father, with his wife and kids, with alcohol, and of course, when you talk about all those things, ultimately, one's relationship with oneself, with himself. And Justin Bourne, now an NHL analyst for Sportsnet, joins me now. Justin, thank you. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Yeah. Tell me a bit about what it's like to wake up these days with um, sober. I mean, that's really what this whole book is about, right? (laughs) Yeah. No, it's, um, you know, an entirely different universe from the way that I was living before. I would say, you know, being able to be present and a part of my kids' lives in the morning is is a welcome change at those times. You know, every day I think I woke up with a a feeling of just shame. I talked to, you know, my, my sponsor says he used to wake up and, and feel like the four horsemen of the apocalypse were the first people he was going to see every day. And that's not the case anymore. You know, you, you wake up feeling, you know, excited about what the day can bring rather than, you know, regret from the day before and fear about what's coming next. Yeah. Four years, right? Four years this week. Yeah. Yep. That's a huge, I mean, anyone who's known anyone, I think we've all known someone who's gone through that, that, um, it's a huge accomplishment. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it, you know, four years, it's crazy to me that that is the number. You know, it's uh, the, the program is sort of a 24 hours at a time thing. They they add up. And, you know, as you're told when you get started, it does get easier. So, you know, being here now and, and looking back at, uh, at how it was before, it's been the most – the best four years, the most meaningful four years of my life. So, yeah, man, I'm, I'm in a pretty good place right now. It's an interesting story, though, because I think when we think about uh, alcohol and addiction and so on, we often think about it starting early in life. In your case, it didn't. It really started later in life when you were essentially of age, right? Almost. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was uh, I was 20, 21. You know, I went to university late because I played junior hockey like a lot of people. So, you know, as a freshman in university at 2021, kind of dabbled for the first times. I, I avoided it in high school and even during junior hockey. And uh, I probably should have kept avoiding it, <laughs> but it yeah. was, you know, I, the way I look at it, it's, it was sort of 15 years for me, my, the, the whole of my drinking, the first five years was the slippery slope into it. And then 10 years of real active alcoholic drinking. And from age 26 to 36, I put my body through the ringer. So I'm, I'm glad I, I pulled the plug when I did, because my body was not responding well by the end of it. Yeah. And and then you've decided to write about it, which is always, I mean, it's difficult to put it all out there, right? I mean, I think people could know a bit about your story, but then to put it all down on paper, that's a, that's a different experience. Yeah, it was, you know, and and part of it was therapeutic, right? Like I've, I really wanted to connect with people and being in media, you don't get to have face-to-face interactions with everyone, but you want them to feel like they know you. And so I often felt like I was kind of hiding who I really was from people. And so this for me has been, it was a therapeutic process to write, 
and it's allowed me to have deeper connections with people since. And you know, the you, you know, the, a lot of people tell you write books. You don't get rich writing a book, <laughs> you know. But the, you know, maybe Prince Harry did. I don't know. That one's selling pretty well. But by and large, it is for another purpose. And I have found those purposes, and I've been satisfied with with uh, the decision to do that. Yeah. What were they? And what did you hope that people would get out of it when they read it? Because of course, people are familiar with your story. I think people know you, they certainly, you know, they know your dad, they, they know a bit about that history. But what were you hoping people took out of the book? Well, I just think there's a lot of people like me, you know, when I first started going to the the rooms of my program and, and going through it, I was looking for people who had you know, who hadn't lost it all because there's a lot of people who drink and the, the, there's tragedy at the end, right? Like, you know, the way that it can end for people. But, you know, I was trying to make the change before I lost everything, before I lost my wife and my job and, you know, my son and, and the way it was at the time. And and I wanted to, to see that people had made the change before it got desperate. And even though it was desperate, I, I was able to do that. And what I, one thing I learned is that people who make that change don't have to be in the rooms as often. You know, you, you find a big a fulfilling life out there and a busy life with the things that you wanted to keep and so I'm an active part of my family and my job and and all those things and you know I still make an effort to be at the meeting so people can see that you don't have to lose everything to have a life worth saving you do talk about the relationship with your dad and and so listeners know um your dad was sort of was absent when you were young i think you know my parents divorced when i was 9 uh, we know what that's like it's difficult on the kids but but there was a part of your dad's life, I guess, that you weren't as exposed to as perhaps you would have been. And some of those cautionary tales weren't there for you to see in some senses that, yeah. you know, addiction can be intergenerational, right? Yeah, no, that's it's an interesting point, too, because, you know, a lot of people think I grew up in a house with a dad who taught me everything I knew about hockey, but that wasn't the case. And then the next assumption is that I grew up around this alcoholism, you know, that must have also been awful, but that wasn't the case either. You know, he was in the U.S. coaching uh, IHL teams and, you know, working on a different sort of career. So, yeah, I, I didn't really have an exposure to you know, what he was going through. And I did eventually get pulled into it as most family members of people going through that and, and got to see the harms of it. But by then it was almost too late for me. So in a lot of ways, I just kind of learned things the way that most people do as I experienced them without, um, you know, having watched someone else go through them. And I, I you know, I wrote an article in the Globe and Mail last weekend about, mm -hmm you know, how I got started and hey, could it have been different for me? Like, you know, with my genetics, could I have drank in a healthy way and maintained a life the way that normal people do? And I don't know the answer to that question, but I, I hope to provide that answer through my own kids and, you know, teach them about respecting alcohol and not to fear it necessarily, but just about, you know, the, the way I'm wired and they're going to be wired the same way. So it, it's, a, you know, a, I'll do the best I can to to introduce it to them in a healthy way. It's certainly not a conversation we were having 30 years ago. No, no. Even, you know, on my way growing up, it was just funnel the beer, kid. <laughs> you know? yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah, I think the, there's much more awareness and acceptance of the harms that can come with that lifestyle. The article in the Global Mail is called With Intergenerational Addiction, How Much Chance Did I Have to Avoid Alcoholism? I highly recommend it. Get the book, but you can read that as, a, yeah. as sort of an aside to the book. You know, looking through all the all that you've written about it, I, I was struck by the whole idea of, of relationships with one's dad, 
And I was wondering how much that impacted you when it came to the decision to make a change and how much you wanted to be for your kids, perhaps what you hadn't had growing up. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, basically the heart of what the book is. It's trying to find a, a way to be a better person. So for, you know, so I could be better for those around me. And, you know, there's a lot, a lot of people when they talk about or they think about getting sober, there's fear in a lot of the different programs that there's this religious element, like a God element. And, you know, I was fortunate enough in rehab to have it explained to me that what that is, is you just have to believe in something being more valuable than yourself or worth more than yourself. And for me, it is what you're talking about. It's my family ecosystem, aunts and uncles and kids and, you know, cousins and obviously wife, you know, I, I want to be a strong part of that, a strong link in the change for the, the betterment of everyone around me. And, you know, that's a big reason why I wanted to be sober is because I want to be there for my son and my daughter. And I want to be there for my wife. And I want to be someone that people can count on rather than the flakier version of myself that I was before. So, you know, when I got to the program and was able to say, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can't and the wisdom to know the difference, that God part for me, you know, doesn't necessarily mean I'm suddenly a Catholic. It means I'm connected to something greater. And for me, it's that family. Yeah. If listeners don't know, your wife is uh, Brianna. She is the daughter of Clark Gillies. And if we remember back to those 80s Islanders teams, obviously Clark Gillies and Bob Bourne were big parts of them. Has that helped? I mean, obviously, she's been such an important part of this recovery for you. But how does that connection, because there were connections there, right? There were longstanding family bonds. How did that play? How did that play into it? Well, you know, I think there's an acceptance or an understanding of where I came from, right? Like her family and her, you know, and even, you know, Brie herself would have seen the hockey world and the environment that I was a part of and understood how you can get led to drinking in excess and partying and all that stuff. So when I did recognize that it was time to clean my life up, you know, it's not like it came from nowhere necessarily. You can see the past and understand the background. And I think that helps the support when it's not confusing, but rather something that is, uh, you know, like I said, you can understand a little bit better. So her family was uh, unbelievably supportive too. And her dad was there for me every step of the way, anything I can do. The second I told them, uh, proud of me and, and all that. So I, I'm grateful for to not just her, but to her family, just a, a wonderful, a very fortunate to have in-laws like the Gillies, I can tell you that. Yeah, you must have been like a son to him before you were a son-in-law to him to some extent. Yeah, I was around enough, right? We grew up as next door neighbors. I was there till I was five or so. And even going back and he sent a driver when I was 16 years old, I lived across the country and our dads just knew each other. So he, uh, we, we had remained connected even before I started dating his daughter at 26 years old. A broader question. I don't want to boil this down to, to, to drink, but when you look at some of the problems plaguing junior hockey right now, how much do you think a much more honest and frank conversation about booze might help in this whole fiasco? Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's hard. I The one thing I didn't want to do when I wrote the book is be like, look at hockey culture. It's terrible. Because yeah. certainly there are terrible things and terrible moments that have come from it. I'm not oblivious to that. But like, I don't 
blame hockey per se. Hockey improved and has improved a great deal over my lifetime. You know, there was no, you know, hazing coming up through junior hockey was terrible and it's changed. I'm not saying there's nothing there, but it's certainly better than it used to be. And, uh, you know, it's more competitive. So I don't think there's as much room to just drink and slough off and all that. So, I don't want to excuse it either. I think what I want the book to frame is that there are pros and cons. There are good parts of hockey and bad parts of hockey. You know, we, we need to be encouraging the good ones and avoiding those bad ones. And it's complicated because my dad ended up in a way that you wouldn't envy right now with concussions. And, um, you know, he's been through treatment himself a few times, but ask him, you do it again to, you know, have experienced the life he experienced and what it provided our family. So there are certainly things to watch out for. They need support and they need education and we need to have a close eye on what's happening. But I'm not as quick as um, some may think to say that we need to overhaul hockey because it's life and life is complex and hard. Right. And that's why I hesitated to ask you. I was just curious about that connection uh, and, and yeah, what, you thought, sure. what you thought of it. Well, Justin Bourne, thank you so much for sharing uh, sharing all the details of your new book. It's called Down and Back on Alcohol, Family and Life in Hockey. Uh, thanks so much. Appreciate you having me on. Well, let's end the night on a upbeat kind of note. We're going to talk about cats. A uh, listener just texted, we've been talking about this idea about men and cats because the whole premise of this movie we're about to talk about, this documentary called Cat Daddies, is that there has been traditionally, I wouldn't call it a stigma that's probably going too far, but that men who like cats, who own cats, don't feel as comfortable talking about them. And many of this, many of these situations arise, of course, when men are younger and sort of one, I think one of the car- one of the people in this documentary says, you know, I told my college roommates I was going to get some cats. And they're like, what? Get a dog, right? Um, one of our listeners says, cats and men, we adopt the unadoptable cats with medical problems. They all have decided that the man in our house is their best friend. The one we have is Cargo. He has cancer, but I medicate him and he's a happy cat. Yeah. I mean, I like cats. Cats are pretty awesome creatures. You know, they can be a little, I guess what it is, is when you go to someone's house and they have a cat, the cat isn't, doesn't come up to try to ingratiate itself to you, right? It's not like other people's dogs, not everyone's dogs, by the way, but most. So it's a bit of a different, like they're solitary, right? To some extent. And they, they're a little, you know, in my experience that, you know, they're, they're affectionate and cuddly when they want to be. And not always, you know, I know there's, that's such a generalization. There's all kinds of different uh, kinds of cats out there and different kinds of owners and relationships. So back at the outset, sort of right near the beginning of COVID um, beforehand, and then the shooting was supposed to take place and then COVID hit. Um, my next guest, Mai Hong, went out to make this movie. She's a cat lover herself. And she really wanted to make this movie about men and cats. Um, and so she set out to find characters to put in her, put in her film, in her documentary about their relationship, how they, whether the cat was bought or adopted or found, many times they're found. Uh, and then to follow these different individuals, and they have spouses, some of them are on their own. One gentleman uh, at the time was living on the streets of New York. Uh, there's a firefighter, there's an Instagram model, there's a trucker. There's all kinds of guys from different walks of life, some of them married, some of them not. And this is really about their relationship with their cats, right? And it's and it, you know, it sounds like one of those things think, oh, a movie about cats. It's so it's really a really charming film. I'll give you an idea of what it sounds like. Here you go. 
People see a cat dad and they're like, oh, you must be weird and creepy. And I feel like we're getting to a point where it's going to be okay to be like, yeah, I have cats. One of my good friends in college asked this group of male friends, what do you guys think if I got a couple cats? Definitely the reaction was like, no, man, you can't do that. Men have always loved cats. Some of those old stereotypes that are fading away. We started an Instagram on it. There was some media interest. They want to know who owns this cat. You know, where does this cat come from? The bigger we got online, the more people started reaching out to us and wanting to meet us. It wasn't going to be that I need to train him. He kind of came out of the box as an adventure cat. I had no idea of her love for cats. She came over, that was it. And I was like, keep doing your thing, Toodles, good boy. When you punch in in the morning, you don't know what you're about to run into. You probably have a hard time getting the guys to admit flame helps, but it's proven that even just petting an animal can bring your blood pressure down. I definitely feel a sense of purpose in this work. The immediate gratification of taking a cat off the street. Being homeless almost two years, it's hard. Lucky first and foremost has become his family. There you go. A snippet of Cat Daddies. And Mai Hong, the director and producer of Cat Daddies, joins me now. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Ben. You must be, I mean, anytime someone sets out to do something, uh, you must have your doubts as you're going through it. You must be really, not surprised, but you must be really happy with the reception. Wow. Oh, I'm I'm thrilled. I mean, we in 2020, we were even worried that we would even finish this movie. I mean, we started it out as a very easy, simple thing just to get my feet wet into documentary filmmaking. And and then the pandemic happened, stretched everything out, <laughs> stretched budget, stretched time, you know, deadline, everything. And so, yeah, we're just pleased as punished just to just to have it done and then just to just to have it received so well, especially by cat lovers, which is who I made it for. It's just been, um, yeah, it just feels great. I could see how cat lovers would really, really adore this. Uh, Maya, are you saying this, this is how you got your feet wet in documentary making? This is quite the debut. Oh, thanks. I've been working in narrative form, more so producing, but a little directing. I even directed some short films with cats and every time I did one of those, I was just like, I'm never going to work with a cat again. It's just so hard. <laughs> yeah, they're tough extras. They're, they're, t- they're tough they're very, actors. Yeah, they don't take direction very well. They're just terrible, terrible divas. Documentary, you know, it's different. And, and and the fact that, you know, we weren't trying to make them do anything or set them anywhere. We just observed. And we just kind of stayed quiet and and move slowly and we just kind of observe what what they were doing and kind of what they wanted to tell us so so that changed everything yeah it's so cat-like for them to have been the really the sort of the stars of this right the reluctant stars of all this what Mm -hmm. was your what was your inspiration for doing a full documentary about men and their cats well, I'll tell you, the main motivation was just my own selfish motivation. I've seen probably everything cat-related out there, and I'm a cinephile, and I, you know, I want to watch content on the big screen. And and you know, whenever I've seen cat documentaries on the big screen, and you know, it's just such a great audience experience. Everybody's really engaged in ways that you just don't even see in the theater anymore. And and just being with the cat community is just so magical and and I wanted to recreate that and 
what better subject was men and cats since I like both. And uh, <laughs> I was having my own experience with my husband. You know, when we we're just dating, he was not a cat guy at all. You never would have pinned him as one. And so it was just a shock to me, everyone, his family, that he had it in him. You know, a cat found him one day, no influence of mine. And he was just hooked. And sometimes it just takes the right cat. They're not all the same, and, and there's this one cat that changed him, and you just saw a different side of him. Uh, you just didn't think possible, and then... Because um, that's a common theme in this mm-hmm. in this documentary. I mean, to walk with listeners through it, it features nine men, all from very different walks of life, all in very different circumstances, mm-hmm. and their, first of all, the sort of origin story, how they met, this was often... The cat found them, as you pointed yeah. out. And often it was about the bond. How did you find the, the nine? How did you find it settle on these nine people? Uh, really was just gut feeling. There were some men I wanted to involve, but the main prerequisite was that the cat had to be okay with a crew, have strangers in their home. So, you know, that knocked a lot of people or a lot of cats off the list because obviously we didn't want to stress anyone out. You know, so I had to be a pretty well socialized cat. The men all had to be different. I wanted them all have a different occupation. We we're actually planning some international stories, but then the pandemic changed all that. Right. It was just kind of a a mix of people I'd been following for a while, wanted wanted to see them, you know, on the big screen. David in New York and his cat Lucky that were living right. on the street, they were just a tip from a woman that was trying to help them for a long time. I was already started filming, so I didn't think this would work. But then, you know, you meet him and you just fall in love with him and you just go, it's just a gut feeling. That's a a particularly impactful story too. David had come to America from Georgia, from the country of Georgia, uh, many years ago. He found himself homeless and found this cat near death and then saved it. And then it saved him. And it was because... It was because of the pandemic that his storyline grew, I think. We spent more time with him because tonally that made sense. And also just some of the travel we couldn't do, you know, some some of the men had to drop out. When, when you looked at all nine of the characters, I mean, clearly at some point you had to decide, okay, this is who I'm, these who this is whose stories I'm going to tell. These are whose cats I'm going to feature. And I'm going to try to build some sort of flow and narrative into it. What were you hoping? I mean, what is the... What would you hope the ultimate message was through this as you show these individual stories? Yeah, I was super naive going into this. I I didn't really have everything laid out and formulated and kind of outlined. It was just sort of like, I like these men. I like hanging out with them. And if I like hanging out with them, probably other people will like it too. And so so it was just sort of like, I'm going to put them all together and then it's going to collect, like put all these portraits together and then collectively it's going to say something. And I don't know yet what that is. Yeah, maybe that's why it works so well because it is so organic. Yeah, very. And then I guess what you what you kind of see happening and kind of the statement it makes in the last half hour is kind of, you know, was organic and it was what was happening at the time, just everything that was happening during 2020, not just with the pandemic, but even politically in, in our country being so divided. And and so there's a lot of political undertones to the film that 
I wasn't, you know, I didn't set out to do, but it was just organically coming out and just all the kind of challenges we were facing. And we still face like we're facing a lot of challenges with with housing. And and, and that's very important when you're a pet owner, because we're looking for more space. And if we don't have it, we can't have pets. Uh, Maya, when you look at 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 the relationship, because this starts from a place, obviously, where every single character in your movie discusses the idea that having a cat, liking cats, being a man who openly likes cats, carries a bit of weight with it. Why, why do you think that is? And how did you explore it? Yeah, I think in America, um, there is a lot of stigma about it, I think, because it could be that saying that, you know, um, dogs are a man's best friend, and it, it could be coming from that. It could also just be what our ideas here in America, what what being a manly man is. And, and a lot of that is with being with dogs that are kind of protectors, often for security. You don't really think that with a cat. Also, dogs are more obedient. You know, they can be trained yeah. and do tricks and kind of do what they're told. But but cats are are a little more independent. But that doesn't mean they're any less loyal or less affectionate. And I think that a lot of people tell me they're surprised when they see the film when they see how many different personalities the cats have. They totally didn't get it before and i think because cats live such a private life they're not you know out being walked on the street so if you don't no. have a relationship with one you don't know then you don't it's, know them. i i guess it's sort of that idea that you have to cater to a cat and that in some way goes against the notion of why you have a pet right i mean that's yeah yeah, yeah you know yeah I, I like cats i had a cat and a dog at one point and they were both great in their own way they used to fight you know the the cat used to just sit there and bat the dog it was the alpha <laughs> right it was the alpha which was yeah yeah. Which is so so funny about that. You know what? What really struck me about the movie, though, is it's not really about cats or or humans or pets. It's about it's about connections. It's about companionship. Yeah, I think it's about love, and it's about really that that unconditional love, especially in times like these. That's that's extremely important when you know hanging out with friends could be risky. We had our pets for companionship, and they were a constant. And they're unconditional in their love. Yeah, I guess you can't really take the movie out of the context with which it was shot, right? I mean, this was at the height of the pandemic and people were feeling alone and Mm -hmm. lonely. Yeah, on top of that, some of these men have very stressful uh, occupations. Some of them are away from home a lot and having that furry companion uh, is, is something comforting to them. And, and, and I think also the movie addresses a lot of mental health issues. And I just love the fact that these men admit all these things, you know, uh, that they value their cats and they, they admit these things that, that it really helps with their, their stress. So, so what do you tell the listener out there is like, ah, cats, you know, ah, cats. <laughs> what would you tell them? I would tell them my own theatrical booker hated cats. And then he saw this film and said, oh, I got to work on this. I got to work on this movie. And he came on board and joined the team. I, I think everybody everybody tells me this uh, come out of screenings. They're just like, I didn't know cats could be like this. This has changed my opinions. So who knows? 
It's funny. I, I guess it's because when you go to visit other people who have pets, say you don't have pets yourself or you have a dog or you, you don't have a cat, for instance, you go to other people's houses and the cat isn't the one that comes running out. to. They, they, they all put on a show for the guests, right? And I always thought that was mm-hmm. part of the issue when it came to people because you go to someone's house and you love their dog, you kind of, oh, their dog's great. But cats are different, right? So you don't get that same, you know, I, I, it, sometimes it takes something like this to offer a port- offer a window inside the lives of cats and their owners. Yeah, you don't have that when you visit other people. You really have to have that one-on-one relationship, as my husband discovered, to really understand what they're all about and why they're so great and why they're so interesting, you know, endlessly fascinating. I mean, I've been cat owner all my life, and they still continue to surprise me and fascinate me. I think that a lot of people are seeing this movie and, and it's just opening their eyes, I think. Yeah. And I don't, I, you know, I knew this going in. Like, I haven't seen this much kind of intimacy between a cat owner and a cat. So we really went in there with patience to, to get that out. I w- you know, the, the term herding cats doesn't <laughs> come from nowhere, right? And you essentially mm-hmm. herded cats to some extent to, to make this. Uh, any 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 good outtakes uh, about some of the difficulties that we don't see? Because you see the best of the best when you watch the documentary. There must have been some moments. Where- yeah, I do have some cell, fo- cell phone footage I share on social media sometimes of like the cats are like the cinematographer would be shooting one cat and then another cat is like trying to get his attention and just eating his hair and rubbing all over him. And <laughs> and yeah. then also we discovered that the boom mic is actually a very good good way of trying to get the cat to look where you want them to look. Really? It's almost like having a cat toy. Yeah, like the laser. Kind of want to. Yeah, they look at it and then they want to reach out for it, thinking that you're trying to play with them. <laughs> yeah. So that was sometimes useful. They are little predators, right? And there's a few footage, some footage you have out in the, in the wild with um, with one of the couples where you can tell the, you can tell the cat's looking around for something, and it and it probably isn't to play with it. Oh yeah, yeah, they're natural hunters, um, and we did go to great lengths to try to show, you know, cats in different environments. We wanted to show that. Yeah. and even the cat that that was outside in New York City. I mean, I think a lot of people would look at that and think, "Wow, that's that's not." That's not good for the cat. It's but, not natural. But Lucky mm-hmm. seemed okay. The cat seemed, I mean, I guess that that's a that's a moral decision you have to make while making this film, right? Yeah, I think because he was kind of born outside and kind of lived outside since he was very, very young, he very, very used to it. And he, he you know, he just wanted to be with his, his dad, you know, very much. Well, Mai Hong, the movie is called yeah. Cat Daddies. It is award-winning already. It is uh, released in Canada today on video, at least anywhere you stream or rent. Uh, either way, you can see Cat Daddies. Mai Hong is the director and producer. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. 